0: What do you get when you mix curiosity, confidence, and hustle, and apply it to an ambitious career in tech? You get a leader like Megan Quinn, general partner at Spark Capital. Megan started her career as one of the first PMs at Google without a technical degree, and she leveraged this early experience into leadership positions as Square's director of products and as partner of the VC firm Kleiner Perkins. In this episode, we chat with Megan about the patterns she's seeing in organizational design for growing startups, the leadership qualities specific to designer founders, and about the arc of her remarkable career. For the purposes of disclosure, we also want to mention that Spark Capital is an investor in Envision, the producer of this podcast. Enjoy our chat with Megan, and thanks, as always, for listening. Megan Quinn. General Partner at Spark Capital specializes in working with world-changing entrepreneurs to design, build, and scale transformative consumer products and companies. Prior to joining Spark Capital, Megan was a partner at Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield & Byers, where she led a number of firms early stage and growth investments, including Slack and Uber. Before she entered the world of venture capital, Megan was Square's Director of Products and spent seven years at Google in various leadership positions. Megan is a passionate collector of historical maps, and she received her degree in political science and history from Stanford University. Megan Quinn, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're so very excited to have you here. And um, I think we'd like to just start off by asking you a little bit about your career path and your transition from from working on products to, to being a venture capitalist.
1: Sure. So I joined Google about six months before the IPO working as more or less a gopher in marketing on the IPO, um, not really, frankly, knowing what an IPO was or understanding or appreciating the momentous occasion that it was for the industry when Google did go public. Um, But quickly thereafter, moved over to uh, the Maps organization as the company acquired another company called Keyhole, which ended up serving as the underpinning for Google Earth and Google Maps. And it just so happened, as you mentioned, that I am a historical map collector and a map fanatic. And so I was personally really interested and curious about how we could build the next generation of maps online. Um, And this was before sort of the uh, WYSIWYG, Google Maps, drag-and-drop satellite imagery kind of experience that we all know today. So I spent the rest of my time at Google, about another seven years from that point, largely focused on building maps, um, specifically building Google's maps in-house. So we originally started by licensing third-party data to get a product out into the market. Um, And we licensed from two companies, Navtech and TeleAtlas, that were shortly acquired by Nokia and TomTom. And we don't think about this now, of course, but at the time, Nokia was quite a significant competitor for Google, a real threat, we thought, to the core business, and uh, we decided that we needed to have true um, data independence as it related to maps, not just for sort of the consumer product experience that you think of, of business search and driving directions, but also for location-based advertising and for Android and, and all of these other products and projects that were underway. So I led the effort there from the product side about de- on developing our own maps internally which uh, took me across the business development organization and the operations organization. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, it's still a project going to this day because once you start building maps, you can never stop. Um, and after about almost eight years at Google, I transitioned over to be the head of product at Square. Um, it was a transition that I made with quite a bit of hesitation. I loved my time at Google, but I started to have these reoccurring nightmares that I was going to be, you know, the fifty-year-old SVP of some product group at Google, and I would have never worked anywhere else or seen any other kind of business model or, or worked with other types of people. And so I went out and looked for the exact one-eighty opposite experience. And to the extent that Google was, you know, at that point a fairly large company, Larry and Sergey really pushed decision making to the edges, and they themselves, as personalities, stepped back and it was a very engineering-led organization, I went out to find the startup that was the opposite. And that was Square. Um, Square was largely a cult of personality at the time around Jack. And it was obviously hardware, which I had not done before. And it was a very design-led, intensively design-led organization. And so I wanted to have another experience to learn from and landed up there as the the head of product. And while I was at Square, I think I joined what was about 20 people. I oversaw our hardware and software development and built up the software product team. We eventually hired a head of hardware who was much better and smarter than me, Jesse Dworkesker, who's still there today, who came over from Apple. Um, And I ended up leaving when the company was 400 some odd people to go into that investing side, as you mentioned.
2: What was that like going from uh, you know the this period of of Google when it was very engineering focused and you know in the past few years uh, it's it's shifted a fair bit and it's it is more uh, design aware is is a good way to describe it um, certainly a big part of their strategy today going from uh, you know this this very engineering driven um, culture to a design driven culture because there's sort of spectrums there was there like. Positive, was it a positive transition? Were there negative sides to, to having that, that transition?
1: It was a really educational transition. So when I was at Google, I only ever met one designer. We had one designer in all of Google Maps, which was at the time the second largest Google property after Google.com. Hmm. And um, she's fantastic, the designer that we had. So she was really, truly wonderful and a real thought partner in developing the product. But it was still one person to, you know, a few hundred engineers at that point. Transitioning to Square was the exact opposite. Um, It wasn't so much that design was just a thought partner. They were really a driver of the overall product innovation process. And so we treated the engineering product and design orgs as this triumvirate that worked very, very closely and collaboratively together at Square to design, define, and build the products. Um, as they went to market. And that was a new experience for me. A lot of the design ethos at Square came from Apple. A number of the Apple uh, Square designers had previously been at Apple. That was a new culture, both around design thinking, but also in terms of cadence of shipping and expectation of engineering um, than what I was used to at Google. So it was an extremely educational experience for me. It was really valuable to see that you didn't always have to ship tests and experiments and lots and millions of little iterations to get to a good product, that there was a role for intuition and customer um, interviews and um, behavioral interviews um, and really appreciating the notion of having a point of view from a design perspective about how a product should work and look. I mean, I think at the end of the day, design is not how something looks or feels um design is the abstraction of the technology to the end experience for the consumer and that's really something that i learned when i was at square
2: so intuition that's just not something we hear too many people talk about it's it's always like data we need to be certain Um, but intuition and and operating on gut is is a really valid uh way of, of thinking about things at times not all the time but um was that, uh, did that ever uh, bite you in the, in, in the butt? Like this, we're, we're operating on intuition, we're a small company. Were there any times where I just felt like, okay, we, we probably need to be a bit more analytical about our approach here?
1: Well, data certainly played a role at Square, too. I don't want to make it seem like it didn't. We were um, very focused on analytics. And in fact, the company was famous, I think, for, in some ways, Starting the trend of having big screens all over the office. We call them radiators of real time performance of the company across a number of different variables. So, at a macro level, we really thought and cared a lot about data. But from a product development and release process, it wasn't a lot of iterative testing. It was really coming to a point of view, building something beautiful and functional, and putting that out to the consumer um, and getting feedback in a sort of ongoing way. Um, I have a good example, though, of that tension because you're right. There is a, a certain amount of tension between data and intuition. And it sounds simple, but it's something that we really wrestled with internally for a while, which is Square was, back in the day when it first released, the first product where you could sign with your finger. And we don't think much of that today because we probably all do it multiple times a day. But at the time, it was kind of fun. It was this experience that people remembered. And you don't typically remember your transaction experience, standing at a point of sale and running a credit card. Um, You remember what it is that you purchased. But when people paid with Square, they would take pictures of themselves signing with their finger and they would post their signatures to Twitter and Facebook and talk about how cool it was to be able to do that because... It felt like they were really engaging and touching with the product in a way. And it was just fun. It was really kind of one of these delightful moments in an otherwise fairly boring process. But around the time that we released Square, uh, both MasterCard and Visa came out with a new rule that said for transactions under $25, you no longer needed to collect a consumer signature. And a lot of the customers that we served basically their average transaction was less than $25 because they were serving muffins or coffee or donuts or whatnot. And for our customers, those merchants, speed of processing was what was really important. And we learned that very quickly, that they didn't love these amazing, beautiful transitions, animations with flying stars everywhere that we thought were so cool. You know, our merchant customers... Were like snapping their finger, saying, no, I just need to get to the next customer. There's a line. I feel very high tension. Why are you showing me these beautiful stars in the, every transition? Just get me through this line. So we knew from a customer perspective and that customer being the merchant that they would appreciate the fact that the their end customer didn't have to sign with their finger because it would make the whole transaction process faster and they could get on to the next customer. But at the same time, we knew that for Square... And for the overall ecosystem, that moment of delight was really powerful. And it wasn't just brand building for the company. It was an association that that end customer had with the merchant that was unique and positive. And so we wrestled with the, do we do away with signatures for transactions less than $25? Um, Because, you know, the data will tell you that that's faster and that our surveys of our customers will say they want faster processing. Or do we keep that element of signing with your finger because it is so delightful and unique and people clearly like sharing it and experiencing it? And so what we ended up doing is keeping it, keeping the signing with your finger. So even to this day, um, it's probably something that people do quite frequently now. Um, But we did make it an option deep inside settings that if you were really motivated, you could go find and you could uh, turn it off for transactions less than 25. But that is a bit of editorializing that, frankly, we did um, on behalf of our overall customer base that was more intuition than data-focused.
0: Megan, there's this uh, great story from an interview with you in Recode, Decode, where early in your time at Square, you noticed a lack of any product roadmap, and you sent an email to Jack Dorsey. I'm just going to paraphrase this, but you said something like, I'm new here. I don't want to step on any toes, but there's six or seven things I do differently. We think about building this product across engineering, design, and PM. And Jack just wrote you back and said, Congratulations, you're our head of product. Um, what are some of the things you look for now as in a product roadmap as you as you evaluate and advise companies in your in your current role?
1: Yeah, it's it's one of the more tactical things that I work on with the companies where I'm an investor, because I do think. As um, potentially trivial and tactical as a product roadmap may seem, I think it's a very clarifying document for the overall organization, not just people that are in product and engineering design, but it really defines and reinforces the priorities across a company. And I think that that's really important, especially in fast-growing companies. So when I work with companies on their roadmaps today, there are a few things I'm looking for. One is I want to have an understanding of priority. I'm a big believer that launches actually shouldn't be pushed, that you should not delay a release, but instead drop features. And I think that that's because it's very important to have a cadence and a sense of rhythm in development, particularly in startups. Um, There's so much uncertainty in a startup that anytime you can abstract away some level of uncertainty and chaos, um, it's actually really beneficial to the overall health of the organization. So I'm a strong believer in sticking launches, but understanding that that may need that you have to um, take out some of the features or functionality that was originally planned to launch. So for that reason, I look for specifically priorities of each feature or function that is uh, within a launch and expect things to be sort of P0 through P5 defined what is gonna drop first so that there's no debating towards the end of the cycle of what's not gonna make it and what's going to make the cut. I also look for um, DRIs, so directly responsible individuals. I'm a believer that at the end of the day, engineering product and design as a um, collaborative group are responsible for the development and launch of any features or new products. But I think when you have a fast growing organization, it's really helpful identify a single person that anyone in the organization can turn to if they have a question, if they need something, if there's something that's not working the way they think it should, if they're just curious. So I always look for DRIs, um, or these directly responsible individuals, as it's associated with each feature or function that's launching. The other thing I look for is some sense of past, present, and future in roadmaps. I think it's very easy in startups to basically ignore your tech debt. You're building so fast. There's all these things that you want to exist in the world. Your customers have all of these requests. And so you can accumulate tech debt very quickly. But at the end of the day, big companies and successful products can't be built with toothpicks and gum. And so it's something that you need to continually address. And if you just say, we'll get to it eventually, like a lot of things in life, you'll never get to it. (laughs) So, um, I advocate for every launch um, to have some element of past, present, and future. And past is some element of, of tech debt. Present is what you're hearing back from your customers, really specific feedback, basically a direct channel between customer support or sales and the product organization. What are your customers banging on the door demanding? And then future is where you have a point of view on what needs to exist in the world, where the company is defining the future for that product or that category, where the real innovation shines. Um, But I think it's important to have an element of all of those into every release and to have that spelled out quite clearly on a product roadmap. So those are three things that I look for. There's some other elements I like to see too. Um, But I do think roadmaps can be a really unifying um, and clarifying a document for for large organizations.
2: So roadmaps, generally speaking, tell us what to do and when, but they're they're not always very good at telling us why. Um, and that's a really key thing. If you're a startup or you're you know you're a big enterprise, uh, keeping all the teams who are involved in making the product connected to the why, and ultimately that means connecting to customer experience, the customer journey. Why are we making what we're making? How is this meaningful? How does it change change people's lives potentially? Uh, how how do you do that? Because um, you know that's that's one of the key things if you're going to operate at scale and people are going to operate with some sense of autonomy and not have total dictatorial uh, direction of every move that they're making. People have to grok that they have to understand this is why we're doing what we're doing. And when you have that, you can operate at scale and and people can have that autonomy. So how do you see companies doing that effectively?
1: Yeah, I think often the why is more important than the what. And it's also one of those things that bears repeating over and over and over again within a company. The, the why are we building this is something that you frankly can't over-communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the really tactical ways that I've seen that done effectively, one, incorporating it into the roadmap. So linking off to a write-up of some type that um, explains in a really thoughtful way the experience that the company is trying to enable with that release or with that product. I'm not personally a big fan of personas, i.e. Jenny is a Mm 25-year-old designer. She lives in New York City. She spends $5 on her coffee. Um, I think that that you can get down sort of a a little bit of a rabbit hole um, that's unnecessary. But I do like documents that explain what a moment in time or a situation looks like when that feature or that product is in the world. Um, and sometimes that looks more like a business case study, which is the very Bezos, Amazon way. Of course, they write out long uh, memos about what they're building and why. And sometimes, frankly, that can look more like fiction. It can look more like a narrative of an experience or an exchange. Um, but I find that... By having that down in some written form, that enables anyone in the company to access that vision and understand the why directly from roadmap, from the tactical um, sort of launch schedule. The other thing that I'm a big believer in is having regular company all hands meetings weekly ideally, but otherwise at you know at other intervals. And I think that those are really great times to both a reinforce what the company is building and why. And to highlight people in the organization that are making that happen. So not necessarily the VPs and the leaders, but who are the people really building and working on um, the designs or um, you know, who are the first, you know, at the, the front of customer service, first line of defense in some ways. Having them get up and talk about their experience with what they're building, I think can be super powerful. Um, and especially if you can do that while showing work or showing data. Um, some of the most effective why conversations that we had at Square, for example, came from having people in customer support get up and talk about interactions that they had with customers, Mm -hmm. you know, that they would, um, you know, talk to taxi drivers, you know, all day long who really depended upon tipping. I mean, it's hard to believe this, but Square didn't have tipping for the first two and a half years of its life. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that this is how people really make ends meet and that this is a real source of income for a lot of people, it makes that feature addition that maybe doesn't feel like, oh, that's not innovative, adding tipping, who wants to work on tipping? That makes it really impactful. It makes it really tangible. Um, So I completely agree that the the, the why is extremely important um, and and something that frankly can't be communicated too much.
2: Of the companies that that you've um, invested in, uh, you know, in the past few years in your career, have you seen anybody that's doing that really well, that's communicating why so effectively, and that's been a key unlock as they they try to scale the company and scale teams?
1: That's a great question. Um, There's two companies that immediately popped to mind. One is Pendo, which is a product experience platform focused on enterprise companies and B2B companies. So they help companies who um, you know have been around for a while, have had products in market for a while. I don't want to name names, but like traditional B2B enterprise types, um, build better products by helping them understand their user behavior on, on the website or an application, and then helping them guide users through tutorials and polling and a lot of consumer-like experiences that we now expect in consumer products but for whatever reason, haven't made their way over to enterprise products. And the founder there, Todd Olson, was previously a VP of product um, before becoming an entrepreneur himself. And he has been really effective at communicating the customer journey and the customer need um, to the organization. So that every time that they launch a feature, there's a real understanding—not of case studies in the dry sense, but of customer stories that help bring to life the features and experiences that they're trying to build, connected with the end results. So they're able to say, you know, our customers, if they do X, Y, and Z, see an improve like a 25 point improvement in NPS. That's really powerful. I mean, that NPS, to the extent that you believe in it or not, is debatable, but There's no doubt that if people are voluntarily saying, yes, I'm more likely to recommend this product, that there have been product improvements. So he's particularly good at it. I also think Slack is another example of a company that effectively communicates internally the why, although um, it's one that, frankly, is more sales-driven in a lot of ways. So Slack started off as small teams of individuals sort of joining, um, getting other people that they worked with on board, And then, you know, uh, over time, organizations realizing that they had all these people on Slack and ending up doing larger deals. But the company has graduated to a a place where really large Fortune 100 companies want to roll out Slack to thousands and thousands of employees all at once. And the stories around how people were band-aiding the product to be able to support thousands and thousands of people when, I think, really, Slack at its core in the early days, was good for maybe 100 people, um, brought to life their need to build out a real enterprise offering. And you know we don't pay as much attention often to enterprise products and services, but I think what's amazing about both Pendo and Slack, and frankly, Envision, is that they're bringing delightful experiences to the enterprise. And Slack's way of doing that was really, frankly, being forced through some amount of embarrassment and friction with their customers who were trying to shoehorn their own needs into a product that wasn't ready for them.
0: So you're just much like the Slack story you just talked about, you're seeing a lot of companies in your current role at Spark come in the door that are in a stage of rapid growth. And what kind of trends are you seeing at these companies as they scale their their design teams, especially? And and are there patterns in, in organizational design or tactics these companies are using to operationalize design that you could share?
1: Definitely. Um, We're seeing uh, definitely the emergence of a chief design officer or a creative lead or someone around the executive table who represents um, the design organization point of view. And I think that that's really powerful because that's A, not something that's been typical in quote-unquote tech companies in the past, and be something I think is really important for building great products. And so, even just having a seat at the table, I think, is a huge step forward for the design community at large. Um, so, that's a trend that we're seeing and that we encourage. The second is, frankly, just the hiring of more designers, which um, sounds pretty tactical. But I do believe that there is a magical ratio of designers to product people to engineers. I, I, I'm not sort of religious about what that ratio is because I think it depends often on what the company uh, stage the company is at and what the product is. I think it can usually look like one to eight to nine, something like that in terms of engineering to design, but that's that's not always the case. Um, But having an understanding that it can't just be, oh, we need to hire more engineers. We just need more engineers. We need more warm bodies that can code, um, but actually we need more builders and the notion of builders being engineers product people, and designers, and that, frankly, you can't over-hire on any one of those and under-hire on the rest and expect a really functional building machine, I think is an important realization within the companies that are growing very fast that I work with.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to UpliftDesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for
0: Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities. Buy as many user licenses as you need and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash designbetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan
2: we we've bit recently been doing uh, a lot of research with um companies where design is a is a you know they, they invest in design they get it um and you mentioned ratios that that was uh you know the 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 findings were pretty much all over the place we found a lot of different things and some some, some interesting findings but the one thing that was a common thread with these companies um i'd say about probably 90 percent of the companies was uh what we call a golden ratio um of uh, it was one three five is what we what we saw that was one p.m. three designers and five engineers, um, and the reason why we think that might be a really important thing is that you know especially when you've got one designer um, by by his or herself and a team outnumbered by engineers, you're reporting into a different set of values um, of you know efficiency uh uh you know it's very quantitative. How do we ship this quickly? How do we, you know, do this in a maintainable way? Um, but not always like qualitative uh in in thinking of like how do we create a really compelling experience. So um ratios become a really key thing in in design. Um but I'm uh, touched
1: on there though that I think is really important and maybe that I wasn't explicit about before, but I do think in the I do think product design and engineering should be independent organizations. Um, I I, um, frequently see design report into product, sometimes product report into engineering, sometimes engineering report into product. Um, My bias and what I encourage entrepreneurs that I work with is to treat those as um, really separate practices that have to work really closely together in order to build the best products. Um, And I think that by having them as separate organizations, you actually create a healthy amount of tension. Um, Obviously, it's three, so it's not a, you know, uh, he said, she said type of experience. And you sort of force an amount of collaboration and conversation around resource dedication and priorities that you might not otherwise have or that you might accidentally abstract away if one of those organizations reported into the other.
2: Yeah, and, and that tension, uh, it, it tends to keep people honest, because if, if engineers are left uh, holding all the power or designers are left holding all the power, they will noodle on and go in a particular direction and follow that bias. Um, and I'm sure you experienced that contrast between Square and, and Google. So why, why this sudden shift uh, for uh, you know, C-level design positions? That's a relatively new thing. Um, uh, as of late, what what's what's the trigger there? What uh, are, are founders um, early on saying we need design represented in the C suite, or is that something that you know people are bringing on later on, feeling like there's a there's a deficit?
1: I typically see companies bring a design leader, and I mean by leader of the exact team level, a little bit later in the company development. Um, timeline than, say, a head of product or head of engineering. Uh, But I think that people increasingly recognize that um, it's not enough to have a product that's functional, that that product experience really, really matters. And product experience isn't just um, does it work and does it work as a user expects, but is it delightful? Um, Consumer expectations of the products that they use frankly, both at work and home, have never been higher. And the iteration and development around new products, I think, is only pushing the bar for everybody so that expectations continue to go up about those services that we use on a regular basis. And so I think that that's where this drive for more design leadership, a louder design voice comes into play with the companies that we're seeing that are on a on a fast development cycle.
0: Megan, um, over the years, you've held a lot of different leadership positions. And I'm curious about what are some of the leadership qualities that you look for in founders that you meet and advise as a partner at Spark? And are there any leadership qualities that are distinct or specific to designer founders?
1: So the first um, quality that we uniformly look for in founders at Spark um, is uh, sort of a a deep sense of ethics. Like uh, we have to be able to trust that the individual is a good person with good intentions. And that seems really obvious. Um, But at the end of the day, a lot of people build companies and not always for the right reasons. And so um, the first thing that we have to both see and feel frankly, and it can be a little bit qualitative, is do we trust this person? Um, The second piece, which is sort of more unique to my point of view, but something that I look for, is a deep sense of personal awareness. Um, And and I say that because you have to be a little bit crazy, I think, to start a company, to found a company. Um, You know, you're kind of going against all odds. It shouldn't work. You know, it's very hard. It's going to consume a large amount of your life. So I do think you have to be a little bit crazy. Um, But I think that the very best entrepreneurs are both crazy and self-aware in so much as that they know what they know. They know what they're good at. But they also know where they need to surround themselves with people who are better than them or who are more knowledgeable about them, people that they can learn from and know when to seek help. And expertise outside of the company. And I think that's really, really important. That kind of growth mindset is now how people often refer to it. But I think that that's really important for long term successful companies. We, of course, look for entrepreneurs who have a vision of the future that they absolutely believe must exist. Um, that they uh, have no qualms, that this is, this is the world that needs to be there and it's going to be this way come hell or high water and that they were born to build it. Um, that kind of tenacity, I think, is really required in building a company for the long term. Um, we would like founders who are very product-oriented. That's one of the unique things to Spark, we would say, is that the companies we invest in tend to have more product-focused CEOs or founders. Um, We think that at the end of the day, the head of product at a company is the founder. Um, And uh, of course, we like there to be a big business as well. (laughs) We want to see a business model in a large market, though understanding that that can take a bit more time.
0: So I think one of the next questions that sort of ties into that leadership question is, how do we get designers to kind of understand and speak the language of business um, to help to get other people other teams to buy in and understand the value of design do you have any pointers or, or tips in that in that realm
1: i have strong views i believe that all pieces of the building process and when i talk about building process of the building engine i'm really talking about product engineering and design that that trio that triumvirate I really strongly believe that all three disciplines need to have a deep understanding of the other disciplines that they're working with. Um, not just strong empathy, but real practical understanding. The, the tip that I would give my PMs at Square, for example, was you know, we had this weekly product review session and the product lead and the design lead and the technical lead for every product would come in and update the executive team on their progress. And there would be discussion topics and so on and so forth. But I always said that we should be able to pull any one of you aside and that you would be fluent in the challenges and opportunities for each of the other functions Um, because you're spending so much time together. You're working on these problems very collaboratively that you should basically speak the same language of the challenges that you're focusing on across those three different disciplines. So I think it's really important. I think the strongest designers that I have worked with not only have a deep sense of the business need, which is to say they don't design for design sake, you know, they design for purpose, they design um, with uh, with an end goal in mind, but also a deep understanding of the engineering requirements of the work that they're doing, which is to say that they've been curious enough and confident enough, frankly, in their own abilities to work really closely with engineering to understand what's possible and the timeline in which things are possible versus designing in the abstract. Um, I I think that that's really, really important. And the same goes, frankly, for engineering. I mean, the strongest engineers that I've worked with had a real deep appreciation for the discipline of design and the needs of design, particularly at the beginning of a process. Um, Yeah, I think it's super important.
2: And. Have you have you noticed uh, companies that have uh, a unique approach to building that rapport between teams? Um, we heard from Alex Schleifer over at Airbnb. He he leads a design team. He actually used to be a developer, so he comes in with that knowledge already in his head. And so, you know, he has regular breakfasts with uh, with. Head of product, head of engineering, and that that creates alignment. But there's so many companies that we see where they don't have that partnership, they don't have that buy-in, but we see that as a really key factor to being able to produce successful products and and um, you know ship uh, efficiently. Um, so are there specific things where you know people can build that rapport?
1: I think thinking of, um, again, not to harp on the square experience, but I think really thinking about these functions, as a triumvirate that's building the best product engine. And when I talk about product engine, it's really about how do we build a product that's wonderful, beautiful, proficient, but is efficient in the process. That we are not waiting on different functions, that people don't feel like they're being streamrolled, that we're utilizing our resources effectively. Like how do we turn the product development process into an an efficient engine? And I think that requires all three disciplines working really closely hand-in-hand. And I think when those three disciplines see it as a, we're all in this together, we being this product group versus we this discipline, I think that's a really important change in how each of those individuals think about building that engine. So it's not designers versus engineers versus PMs, but it's... These three functions working together on this product, in the trenches together, building an engine across the three disciplines that I think is is a small but important change in how we even talk about development within an organization.
2: Uh, you know i'm I'm really curious uh, you're, you're seeing a lot of different companies, and you're seeing them at different stages. Uh, you know, companies that you invested in. Back when you're at, at Kleiner Perkins um, and you see them, their trajectory and, and presumably, you know, remain connected to a certain degree. And now, you know, cultivating these, these new um, investments. And so you see scale, you, you see like every piece of scale and you see it, the ugly warts of that because um, it's not easy and it's really challenging to uh, to push a company through that. It's challenging as an individual to survive that scale Um, what are the big pitfalls of like this? This is where scale is it's most challenging.
1: Yeah. The primary challenge is always around communication. I have a a basic rule of thumb that every time you add 30 people to an organization, everything breaks in terms of your communication strategies. So first 30 people, everyone can basically yell across the room. You know, each other's names, you know, what everyone's working on. Next 30 people, you still know each other's names. You still know who to go to at any point in time when you want to ask a question or talk about something. With every 30 people, though, you abstract away one more layer of communication just by the nature of getting larger. So, the advice that I give to the companies that I work with is to instill processes around communication earlier than feels necessary. Make it so that it almost feels like it's too much process and too much structure for where the company is at. Because if you're growing and doing well, it's going to be just the right amount of process and communication by the time you get any good at it. And then frankly, you're going to have to start all over and build new processes and communication channels. But I think that that's something that's really, really important. Humans don't like uncertainty. We behave really poorly in uncertain environments. Um, It's human nature. It's not because we're bad people. It's just that We are actually mammals who enjoy repetitive, predictable interactions. But everything about a startup is uncertain. And so anytime you can minimize that uncertainty, that you can make something predictable, consistent, you have a metronome around how you build, how you communicate, how you operate. I think that's really, really valuable for a company, particularly a fast-growing company. And frankly, when people tell me, oh, I don't want a lot of process. I don't want a lot of structure. This is a startup. That's why I'm not at Google. Frankly, a lack of structure and process is a process unto itself. It's just a broken one. So that's one of the things that I really work with closely on the companies where I've invested.
0: Wonderful. So one last question for you. And um, I think in in one of your interviews, you said that curiosity, confidence, and hustle have been the cornerstones of your career, which is pretty fantastic. And I Uh, kind of related to the curiosity portion of that. Are there any books or podcasts or other resources that you feel have really helped you along the way?
1: That's a great question. I read voraciously. I read both fiction and nonfiction. I consume content all day long, Um, but the internet's a wide place and it's helpful to traverse it with friends. Um, So I'm a big believer in having... uh, email reading lists. I have three. Um, One is with my colleagues at work, which largely, as you would expect, pertains to things in the technology industry, whether it's portfolio companies or not, or other investors and so on. Um, I have one with friends. It's just around interesting stories that are floating around the internet and the ether. Um, And then I have one with my husband, um, which is very tailored to our personal interests in things like movies and wine. Um, But I'm a big believer in having content streams that are curated by people that you're associated with, not necessarily people who have the exact same interests with you, but people that you're associated with in some way, because there's just so much content out there. Um, At the same time, I read a lot of books, but as I mentioned, I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction. I like them equally. I read a fair amount of sci-fi, which is not unusual in Silicon Valley, um, but has an uncanny way of predicting some future products that... Um, you know, I think that we'll see in the world in 10 or 20 years. Um, I do listen to a lot of podcasts. So basically, whenever I am not speaking to someone, um, I have my ear pods in, which people make fun of me for. But um, I listen to a number of podcasts. But frankly, I try and not listen to technology podcasts. I really listen to podcasts that expand my aperture in other ways, whether it's around... Um, a lot of design a lot of business ones um, economic podcasts uh, Randomly, uh, there's a whole number of true crime podcasts and I'm a fan of now. I'm just embarrassing myself um, But uh, I am I am constantly dipping into various forms of content There's no single book or blog or podcast that I could point to but I think at its essence being curious means you're sort of all over the place in terms of the things that you look at and engage in. Um, to some extent, it's it's knowing a little about a lot, which is one of the perks of my job.
2: Megan, I'm curious if you have learning hacks, because this is a common theme that that we see with a lot of successful people is that they are curious and they're just voraciously consuming content. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of CEOs that have this, this trick where they read a book and they write notes in the back cover. Um, Bill Gates does this, uh, CEOs who I've worked with in the past. So they can always go recall that, that information. So, you know, they're fast readers, they skim things, um, you know, audio consumption, I'm, I'm a big, uh, audible subscriber, podcast, uh, reader. Uh, do you have hacks that you, you use to, to work through books and, and content that's really important to you, uh, very quickly and, and then make it easy to recall?
1: Uh, The primary hack is actually based on the reciprocity that's required for these various content streams that I belong to um, with my colleagues, my friends, and then my husband, which is to say that when I do read something, whether it's on the internet or a book or not, and I make a recommendation about it, I really try and synthesize about why I think it's worth someone else's time. And just doing that quick summary of takeaways um, or insights or just a rationale for engaging in it Uh, is a way for me to develop recall over the things that I thought were interesting, whether I knew it at the time, um, from that book or blog or whatever the case may be. The other thing that I do is, is frankly, I wake up very early. Um, So I wake up around 4 in the morning and really use the time between 4 and 6 selfishly um, to do whatever it is I want, which ends up looking like trolling around the internet reading things. (laughs) Um, and I guard that time, um, really fiercely, um, because I think it's hard for me in either in the midst of a day or even frankly, at the end of a long day to be able to disassociate enough from, you know, the day to day requirements of my work and the things that I'm thinking about in the context of work to be able to engage on different subject matter. Um, and so that's why usually during the day it's a lot of podcasting, which is a much more passive learning experience. Um, but on the reading side, it's much more focused in the early morning.
2: Well, I would hope that guarding that that four to six a.m. time slot is not hard to guard. <laughs> Hopefully, no one's trying to book meetings at that time.
1: No, they're not. But my husband sometimes wants to talk to me, talks to me, and I and I have to remind him that that's that's my time. <laughs> right.
2: Got it. Got it. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Lots of things that we learned here and enjoyed the conversation with you. Megan Quinn, thank you for being on the Design Better podcast.
1: Thank you so much, guys. I really enjoyed it.